Galatians 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18, continuing in our sermon series and Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a white Bible, paperback Bible on the edge of each bench, uh, and you can just turn to page 566, I think. Is it hopefully 566? If not, that'll get you ballpark, and you'll be able to find it. Um, and then if you just want to look at chapter 3, verses eight, 15 to 18... Um, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home, read it, make it your own. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's dig into Galatians 3, 15 to 18. If you want to stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and let's listen to God's Word with reverence and joy. This is the voice of our Lord, and this is what He says to us. This is what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promise of being counted righteous in Christ Jesus, and that this promise is one given to people from all nations. No matter who we are or what we've done, we can be counted righteous in Christ Jesus. What a gift. What a, an unsurpassable gift. What a wonderful gift, Lord. And we ask that as we uh, look into what Paul writes to the Galatians here in, in Galatians three fifteen through 18, that you um, would comfort us with this gift that you would give us assurance with this gift, that you would give us peace in our consciences because of this great and wonderful gift that is a sure thing, as sure as Jesus is alive today. So would you uh, help us to rest on him, to behold him, to enjoy him? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord and Redeemer? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I want to start this morning by simply asking a a very basic question, what is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? When you read the book, what, what are you reading about? When we publicly read Scripture on Sunday mornings together and proclaim and apply what it says, uh, what, what should the content of our message be? What, what, what is the, the main thrust of the message of the Bible? It's the sum of its message. And this is not merely an, an intellectual or kind of brainy question, because how you answer this question will also determine what you believe the basis of the Christian life is. Uh, whatever it is we believe the Bible is basically about, Christian, is, will, is also what we will inevitably believe that the Christian life is basically about. And really, there are only two ways to answer that question. Either the Bible is mainly about us and what we need to do to get to God, or the Bible is mainly about God and all that He's done for us in Christ. 
that the Christian life is either about our performance or it's about God's promise. It's either about our contribution or it's about the Christ and all that he is and all that he does for his people. Is it mainly about God and what he's done or is it mainly about us and what we need to do? And this is all just another way of saying that, that the Christian life is mainly about law or it's mainly about the gospel. Is it mainly about law or is it mainly about the promise of God our Father and the gospel of God the Son? And, and what the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians here in our text this morning resounds with an answer that's good news for those of us who are weary and tired this morning from thinking that the Christian life is all about us and what we do. And so look with me at the permanence of the promise, the person of the promise, and the precedence of the promise. And I know that's our outline for this morning. I know that that's not what's in your bulletin, but, but it changed. So I'll say it again for all you note takers. The permanence of the promise, the person of the promise, and the precedence of the promise. Firstly, the permanence of the promise. Remember with me what we talked about last week, and, and for those of you who weren't here, here's a, a little refresher. We looked at Galatians 3, 6 through 14, and we saw that God justified Abraham through faith and that he promised to justify and bless people from all nations through Abraham's offspring. And justification, what we mean by that, what the Bible means by that, is that God counts us righteous with the very righteousness of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And we saw that the law spoke a different word over us. It, the law did not count us righteous. Rather, the, the law did not speak a word of, of blessing, but of cursing. Rather than speaking a word of justification, the law speaks a word of condemnation. It, it, the, because of our sinfulness, the law accuses and curses and condemns those who seek to be justified through it. And the law is impotent to bring the blessing. But Christ became a curse on the cross for us so that we might be the righteousness of God, so that we would be accepted by God, so that we would be uh, recipients of the blessing of Abraham. And, and this happens no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, through faith we receive the blessing of, of everlasting resurrection life in Christ. And this is all accomplished, remember, in our union with Christ, in our union with Christ, wherein all that Christ is and all that he has is shared with us. His, his righteousness, his acceptance before the Father is shared with us so that we are justified in God's sight and accepted by him. And now as we turn to verses 15 to 18, Paul is continuing to make his argument for justification through faith alone based on Scripture alone. And he's continuing to draw a sharp contrast here between the law and the gospel, between the law and the promise, between salvation through works of the law and hearing with faith. He's continuing to show how, how uh, in our justification these oppose one another. Uh, when, when it comes to our justification before God. And to do this, he, he points way, way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Some of you guys, when we read this, you're going, okay, hold on, what is a, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Uh, and that's a really important question to ask if we're going to understand this text and if we're going to understand the, the whole Bible. We need to know what a covenant is, and, and particularly what, what is meant by the word covenant amongst God's people. And so at, at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship 
made between two or more parties. It's an oath-bound relationship made between two or more parties. And there are a number of relationships uh, in our life that, that fall under this category. Marriage is probably the first one that comes to mind for, for most of us. Two people, a man and a woman, vowing to be devoted to one another as husband and wife for as long as they both shall live. And in this relationship, uh, in the, the wedding ceremony... Uh, they, they exchanged these vows. They exchanged these, these oaths. And so from that point on, from the wedding ceremony on, their relationship is not based on feelings or circumstances or anything else other than these vows that they made to one another and the pronouncement that was made over them at their wedding day. It's an oath or a vow-based relationship. And then throughout Scripture, we see that God makes a covenant with His people. God makes a covenant with his people. We see God make a covenant with Adam and Eve and their offspring. We see God make a covenant with Noah and his offspring. We see God make a covenant with Abraham and his offspring and Israel through Moses and David and his offspring. And what we see when God establishes his covenant with his people in these cases is that he sovereignly establishes a relationship with his people and then he guarantees it by his word. It's the covenant that God makes with his people is God sovereignly establishing a relationship with his people and then guaranteeing it with his word. It's utterly astounding. The Lord of the universe, he binds us to himself by his own promises. The creator of all makes a covenant with the creature. And and this is not two equals coming into this relationship. It's the Lord of all creation condescending to mere creatures and establishing a promise-based relationship with us and guaranteeing this promise by his word. So what is the promise that he makes in his covenant with Abraham? This is what we talked about at length about last week. The promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham is that he would bless people from all nations that he would bless people from all nations. He would declare them to be righteous in Christ and give them the Holy Spirit and give them everlasting life in him. And that he would do all of this simply through faith and not by works of the law. Okay, we we saw that that the blessing of Abraham is the divine welcome to people with a past. That that just like Abraham, he, he came out of idolatry. And he came out of a wicked people and God called him and counted him righteous and accepted him, not because Abraham earned it or deserved it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're given this gift freely at Christ's expense. And in our text this morning, Paul makes a rather peculiar but but wonderful argument to convince the Galatians about the permanence of this promise and, and its certainty in the Christian life. In verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In other words, he's saying, let, let, let me give you an example that you Galatians would be well familiar with. Whenever two people enter into a covenant, after it's established, you don't go modifying it or, or adding additional agreements or stipulations to it. It's It's settled. You don't get to change the promises and the vows made in the covenant after it's been established, right? Again, think of the covenant relationship of marriage. After the vows are spoken, after the ceremony is finished, after the pronouncements have been made by the minister, you don't go back and and start to add stipulations and additional requirements uh, in your marriage. What's done is done when it comes to a covenant. And church, if if that's true with mere man-made covenants... How much more in a covenant promise given from our triune God? 
When God guarantees something, you can bet your life that he will follow through. You can bet your life on it. When he promises something, you can bet on it. You can go all in on it. Calvin said this about the certainty of this promise. He said, if God desires to give full and certain salvation to those who simply receive his promise, then let us not seek to dispute it. Let us not heap on additional requirements. Let's not burden ourselves with trying to earn our keep. God has already said that you are accepted in Christ. That settles it. And we should not dispute it. He's publicly declared. He's gone. In the Bible, the Bible is God going on public record, going on public record that he will bless all nations and accept all of us screw-ups in Christ Jesus. He has legally bound himself to this promise. He has legally bound himself to this covenant that he made with Abraham. And this is the God who, when he speaks, like planets fling into existence. When he speaks, when he says, let there be light, there's light. When he says something, you can bet on it. You can go all in. You can belly flop onto his promises. His his word is a sure thing. When he speaks, things happen. Promises are followed through with. If he has said that he will choose people from every nation as his own and forgive them and accept them in Christ, it's a done deal. And I I don't know what kind of struggles you're having with assurance here this morning, but whoever you are, whatever you've done, if you trust in Christ, you are fully, you are freely and eternally accepted in Christ Jesus. No question. The covenant of promise, it's certain, it's permanent. But now, what does all this have to do with the Galatians? These ancient promises, these covenants, why would this be relevant to the Galatians? And not only that, but what does this have to do with us here this morning? How do these promises come to us? And he answers in verse 16 as he writes about the person of the promise. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Amen. So Paul calls to mind all the promises that God makes to Abraham and to his offspring. God promises Abraham a land, and God promises to bless Abraham and his offspring, and God promises that a great people would come from him, and his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky. He promises that he's going to bless all nations by justifying them through faith, uh, through him and through his offspring. And he's continually including Abraham's offspring in all these promises. He's, and if you're kind of familiar with the Old Testament, you, you know that this is, uh, this is the pattern of promises being made to particular people. It's, it's a, a promise made to a particular person, but then also their offspring. And you know that, that, that if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's not unique to, to Abraham. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, after the fall of humanity into sin and death, after the curse of judgment has been spoken by God over his creation, God promises something. He makes a covenant with his people and says that the offspring of Eve, a son of Eve, will come and defeat Satan and death and sin forever and triumph over them. And then the promises come up again with, with Abraham. And then again in God's covenant with David, in in 2 Samuel 7, he promises David that he will always, David will always have a son, an offspring that will reign as king forever and ever. And Paul points to something really, really interesting about these promises here. Paul points out that the term offspring, or what's sometimes uh, sometimes referred, uh, translated to as a seed or descendant, it's not referring to descendants or offsprings, 
but one person in particular. The word is referring to one particular person. It's referring to Christ. Jesus Christ is the true offspring of Abraham. He is the offspring through whom God would bless all nations. He is the offspring of the promise. God's covenant of promise with Abraham is ultimately all about Jesus Christ because it's Jesus Christ who would obtain and procure all the blessings, all the promises of God. The covenant of promise with with God's people began in Genesis 3.15, continued with Abraham and then David, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ is the one to whom all the goods are promised. All the goods are summed up and promised to Christ. Indeed, He Himself is the promise. God's Son, God the Son coming down, becoming one of us. He is the promise of Abraham and pinchable reality, okay? Christ is the offspring of Abraham who obtains the blessing of being declared righteous and acceptable by God. He is the one who has the unwavering, overwhelming affection and smile of God. He is the one that receives the gift of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He is the apple of the Father's eye. These blessings all belong to Christ. And friends, if you belong to Christ because of his cross, then all these blessings belong to you as well. Remember last week, we talked about our union with Christ. We used the analogy of of marriage and a wedding ceremony to illustrate this. And In a marriage, a husband and a wife, they share all that they are and all that they have with one another. They share all their debts, all their history, all all the the good things, all the bad things about themselves. They share with one another, and they're, they're brought together in this union so that whatever the one has, the other can boldly claim as their own, okay? And, and, and so it is with our union with Christ. We can come to the Father, and we can boldly claim this, this promise of full acceptance, this promise of being counted righteous, this promise of everlasting life, this promise of the Holy Spirit living within you. These you can all boldly claim as your own, because Christ is yours, and you are His, Okay, and, and he died the death that you deserve so that all that you have, all that you are, was given to him on the cross. All that you deserve was given to him on the cross. But he did that so that he, you would receive all that he is and all that he has and all that he deserves so that now you can boldly claim what he is and what he has for your own. This is why 2 Corinthians 1.20 Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. We become recipients of God's wonderful and generous promises in Christ. Or one commentator put it this way, the promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ and then in Christ to all that believe in him. Christian, do you realize what this means? This means that the Father looks on you the same way that he looks on Christ. So so we can look at scripture texts like like when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3. This is one of my favorite scripture texts in in all the Bible. The the veil between heaven and earth becomes a little bit thinner, and we get to to see a picture into what heaven looks like. The Father looks at Christ as the Spirit is descending upon him, and he says, My beloved Son, with whom my soul is well pleased. I'm well pleased with you. And rest assured, 
If you are in Christ, he says the same thing, the very same thing about you right now. My beloved, my soul is well pleased with you. You're his beloved. If, if, if you are in Christ, you are God's beloved. His soul is well pleased with you. Your sin is gone. Christ took it to the grave. Now you're forgiven and God delights in you and you are his forever and ever. And this is all given freely to those who put their, Christ, their trust in Christ as the rightful recipient of all of God's promises. I love what Richard Sibbs, the reformer and Puritan, said concerning this wonderful gift. He said, Often I, I think to myself, what am I, a, a poor sinful creature? But I have a righteousness in Christ that answers all. I am weak in myself, but Christ is strong and I am strong in him. I am foolish in myself, but I am wise in him. What I lack in myself, I have in him. He is mine and his righteousness is mine, which is the righteousness of the God-man. Being clothed with this, I stand safe against conscience, hell, wrath, and whatsoever. Though I have daily experience of my sins, yet there is more righteousness in Christ who is mine than there is sin in me. This is the promise that it's, it's, the promise, and it's permanent, and it's a person. It all comes to us in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. But then you could also see the Galatians and the Judaizers wondering, what, what about God's holy law then? What, what, what about this law? The law is a thing, right? The, the law is a thing. And Paul begins to answer that question in our text this morning, and he continues to do so throughout the chapter. Uh, but he, he, we'll just start with where we are this morning. He begins here with telling them that the promise takes precedence. The promise takes precedence. He writes in verses 17 through 18, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, so as we saw last week, the law and the promise speak two different words about us. The law speaks a word of cursing. The promise speaks a word of blessing. The promise is about God and all that He is for us in Christ, but the law tells us what God requires of us. The promise is God saying, I will, I will, I will. Seven times in Genesis 12 does God say to Abraham, I will. The law is God saying, you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall do this. The law is, is, is uh, to be obeyed, but the promise is simply to be believed. And Paul says here that these two words, the, the word of the promise and the word of the law, are not equal in the Christian life. Okay, the law plays second fiddle to the promise. The, the law, the promise, the promise takes precedence. So no doubt the law has a role, and we'll unpack that at length in the, in the next week and the weeks to come. But for now, Paul is saying to us that the promise takes precedence. The promise is primary. The promise is preeminent. And notice, Paul just simply uses the timeline of the covenant with Abraham and the coming of the covenant of the law to argue his point. The law came 430 years after the promise came to Abraham. Therefore, the promise has precedence. The, the promise has seniority. It's, it's above the law, it came before the law. 
And, and, and to pick up what, what he was saying on, and about the permanence of the promise in verse 15, you, you can't change or add to a covenant once it's been established. The, the, law, the, the law does not make the promise void. Okay, so, so Paul is saying when the law and the promise come to a head, the promise prevails. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The blessing of the gospel triumphs over the curse of the law for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Resurrection triumphs. Justification triumphs over condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for the Galatians and the Judaizers or anyone else to say that obedience to the law earns us our good standing before God as Christians would be like saying a child's obedience to their parents earns them the position of being their child in the first place. In fact, Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on Galatians, he tells a story to kind of illustrate this. He he tells a story about a very wealthy man that adopts this this poor baby boy. He adopts this this child. No strings attached, no stipulations. He just adopts this this poor young boy. And this man just lavishes this this young man and this young boy in in love and in gifts and, and just loves him as his own boy. He loves him as his own child. And then years later, when the child is grown and becomes a young man, the, the wealthy man then gives his adopted child a list of things that he would like him to do and a list of things that he would like him to refrain from doing. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a man in the house now. He needs to follow uh, some certain rules uh, as he's come to age. Uh, he needs to follow these kind of household rules. Can the child then say when he receives that list of rules that obeying this list of things is what earns this child's adoption by this wealthy man? Of course not. The adoption took place long before the rules ever came. And so it is with the the covenant of promise and the law here. The promise came long before the law. Therefore, the promise has seniority. The promise takes precedence. The promise is central, not the law. The law adds nothing to the promise. The law doesn't take anything away from the promise. The, the, The promise has been made and it stands above the law. It stands firm in the face of the law. The promise of our justification before God, the promise of our righteousness in Christ, the promise of our full and free and eternal acceptance by God comes long before the law was ever established. It has nothing to say, nothing to add, nothing to take away from our full and free acceptance by God. That's why Luther goes on in his commentary in Galatians. He addresses the law as if it's a person. I love this. Classic Luther, right? And he says, Lady Law, you come at the wrong time, for you come too soon. Wait until 430 years are up, and when they are up, come and spare not. But if you come then, you come too late. For then the promise came 430 years before you, and I rest in that. Therefore, I have nothing to do with you, and I will not listen to you. I now live with the believing Abraham, or rather, since Christ has now been revealed and has been given to me, I live in him who is my righteousness and who has abolished you. Thus let Christ be always before your eyes as the certain summary of all arguments for the defense of faith against the righteousness of the flesh, against the law, and against all works and merits whatsoever. In other words, when you are being accused and troubled by your own inadequacy, when you are being accused and troubled by your lack of acceptableness, flee to Christ and hide in Him. When the law accuses you and troubles your conscience, flee to Christ and tell the law what's what. 
Tell the law there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tell the law that your acceptance by God is not earned, but freely given in Christ by all who believe. Amen. So what of it? Going back to the question in the beginning, is the Bible mainly about us and what we need to do to get to God, or is it about God and all that He's done for us in Christ? I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible answers this question. It's a, if you're not familiar, it's a, a storybook Bible for young children, um, and it's just a wonderful resource. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the writer of the Jesus Storybook Bible, answers the question, what is the Bible about in this way? Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. And that's really just another way of saying what Jesus himself said in John 5, 39. Jesus, he's in a conversation with the Pharisees and he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that in them you're going to learn what you need to do to earn God's favor. You think that in them you're going to learn how to merit a good standing before God. But listen, it is they that bear witness about me and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, the Bible is about Jesus. The the good old Sunday school answer, it's about Jesus. The Bible is about God's promise. It's not about you. It's not about us and what we do. It's about Christ. And so Galatians and and Veritas, I, I know how easy it is to give in to that sort of natural inclination of the human heart that 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 to think that it's all about us when it comes to the message of the Bible and that the Christian life is all about us and what we do. That that's where we go to by default. I know it's easy to fall prey to thinking that it's about our performance rather than the promise. But with apologies to Carly Simon, what she says in her song, you're so vain, you probably think the Bible is about you. You're so vain, you probably think the Christian life is about you, don't you? And I know myself and I know this church well enough to know that we're not immune to this, that we're not unlike the Galatians. We're so vain that we probably think the Bible, that we probably think the Christian life, that we probably think the mission of God is about us, but it's not. It's about Christ. It's about what he's done. And and, and so we come to this much needed reminder and refresher and rebuke this morning from the Apostle Paul. The Christian life is not about you and what you need to do. It's about Christ and what he's done. And he's more than capable to accomplish our salvation all by himself without any of our help. There's nothing left to do to make ourselves acceptable to God, to earn a right standing. We just throw ourselves on Christ. We just throw, we do a belly flop on Christ with all of our sins and fears and shame and bank on him completely. The pressure's off because the certainty of our rescue rests on God's covenant of promise that Christ obtains for us. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to rest in Christ, to belly flop on him with all of our fears and and sins and and shame? Would you help us to, to rest on him, to bank on him completely, and to trust that he's more than capable to bear the load?
In his name we pray. Amen.